find that. Is it not there? Oh, perfect. Do you guys feel like standing or you just want to sit and fall asleep while you're singing? <laughs> you can stand. Okay. mentioned to you earlier how lunch was always my favorite hour at school. My least favorite hour was always the hour after lunch. <laughs> Whenever I go on the mission field and I take people along with me, if they want to teach, I let them teach the hour after lunch. <laughs> it's always the challenge, right? Well, here we are again, and uh, just want to, I'm going to review a little bit that we saw in Romans, uh, because where we're going next, we're going to see a parallel to what we saw, and the more we study the scripture, the more we realize that there are uh, certain ideas or certain elements that, that repeat themselves over and over, uh, or certain formulas that repeat themselves over and over, and we'll see that as we move into this study. And if, I, if we get through this study fairly quick and we've got a little bit of time toward the end, 
I might just open it up if you have some questions. Um, the next session is actually dedicated to questions, but I want you all to understand, don't think up questions just to think up questions. Um, you've been very patient. Uh, I appreciate you being here and I appreciate your interest, but you know, there's no need dragging it out. When we're done, we're done. Um, so we'll just see how things go. So join me if you would at the throne of grace. Let's ask God's blessing once again on our time together. Heavenly Father, as we come together in this session, it is our prayer once again that you will sanctify this hour, sanctify your word to the nourishment of our souls. And we pray that you'll sanctify us to your service and your purpose, which you had for us when you brought us into the world. You have planned our lives and you planned even that we would be here this day. Each and every one that is here, you have here for a reason. And so, Father, our prayer is that you'll accomplish that perfect plan of yours, even as we go out into the world, that we will fulfill the reason that we've been here, the things that we've learned would work out in our life, and that we would be a source of blessing, encouragement, and witness to the world around us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I want you to think about the, the tension, if you will, or the balance, if you will, in what we saw in our last hour. There is knowing. Unfortunately, there are many believers that don't even know. They're not well taught. They're not well instructed. So that's really the first major step along the way in spiritual growth is learning and knowing. On the other end of the spectrum is doing. And that's presenting ourselves to God, being useful and being effective in whatever area of service he's led us to. We see those two stressed a lot of times. Uh, the book of James comes to mind, faith and works. And it's great to have faith that grows into works, but works without faith are just dead works. So there's a balance there. And the real key, though not stated in the book of James, is what we find here in Romans. That central part is reckoning. No matter how much we know, until we consider that to be a truth in my life, in relation to me, it's not going to make any difference. I can fill notebooks with Bible classes. I can get all kinds of theological information. But until I take that and make it personal and say, this is true for me, this is a reality in my life, it's not really going to work itself out into practical application. So we're going to see the same with the Apostle Paul now as we move into our third segment on meditation. We meditated on, in Hebrews 3, 1 and 12, 3, our Savior and our salvation, the person and the work of Christ. Then we came to, Hebrew, to uh, Romans chapter 6, and there we meditated on ourself. What does this mean to me? What does this truth mean? mean in relation to my life, and so on and so forth. Now we're going to meditate on biblical spirituality. So if you will, open your Bible with me to Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Very well-known verse, not always well understood. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. 
Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. This is a command, once again, it's our old friend that we've seen several times, Legizomai, in other words, write it in the account books, consider it to be a fact. Add up the facts and come to a conclusion, however you want to explain this word, it's used in many, many ways, but this is a command. The scripture commands us to meditate on these things. And unfortunately, as we mentioned earlier in the classes, most of us have never had a class on meditation. I don't remember ever hearing a message on meditation. Uh, I've searched through a lot of theological books, Bible dictionaries, um, systematic theologies. You find almost nothing on meditation. And yet it is so very important. So meditate on these things. All right, what are we going to meditate on? Well, first of all, let's look at the word finally. <clears throat> a lot of commentators uh, attack the Apostle Paul or kind of put the Apostle Paul down because they say he always would come to the conclusion, this is the way they describe it. He's like a preacher who says, and the last thing I want to say, and then goes on for 30 or 40 minutes, Right? <laughs> That's not what Paul's doing here. Paul didn't come to the end of his letter and then think of, oh, I've got more things to say. The phrase that is used here, it's actually two words in the Greek language is, and you'll get the understanding if you write it this way, for the duration or from now on. In other words, he's not talking about coming to the end of his letter. He's talking about what he wants us to do in light of what he's taught us from this point forward. So for the duration or from now on, brethren, I want you to do this. And what does he want us to do? He wants us to meditate on these things. So try to picture yourself sitting alone in your room or I mentioned in the... Uh, meditation course that we had that we did in uh, Arkansas, I said, you need to find your place for meditation. When I was a little kid, we always had a secret place. We would try to find somewhere that we could go that nobody else knew about, and that was our place. Well, we need to do that as adults. We need to have our place for meditation. And I think it helps for it to consistently be the same place. Uh, sometimes I have really a couple of different places that I go uh, in where we live. Um, depends on if the sun's out like it is today and it's shining on the east side of the house. It's nice and warm there no matter how cold it is. I've got a log bench and I go out and I sit on that log bench and soak up the sun and that's where I meditate. Find a place where you can go and Picture yourself there now for just a moment and picture yourself meditating on these eight things. Here they are. Eight things were to meditate. The truth. Okay? Whatever things are true. Number two, noble. Meditate on nobility. Whatever things are just. 
So meditate for a little while on justice. Whatever things are pure, meditate on purity, things that are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, any praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Does that not kind of leave you a little bit flat? Okay, I'm going to meditate on noble. Uh, well, I haven't come up with much there. Good report. Why does it kind of leave us flat? Because everything he says in verse 8 is talking about what he already illustrated for us earlier in the chapter. So we're going to go back in the chapter and we're going to find out what things are fitting into all of these categories here. That's what we want to do. I want to emphasize, first of all, that the Apostle Paul's emphasis through the entire book, it's always good for us to get the big picture. You know, there are three ways we look at life. We look at life through a telescope. We can look out, we can see Jupiter, Saturn. If you've ever looked through a powerful telescope and seen the stars, the planets, it's fascinating. But you know what? If your vision worked like that telescope, you couldn't function. You'd be standing here looking at the stars, but you couldn't take a step without running into something, right? At the other extreme, we have the microscope. And we can look through a microscope and we can see microbes and viruses and germs and all of those things. And it's a whole different world from the big world that's out here all the way down to this world that's down here. But you know what? Once again, if your vision was like that microscope, you could not function in the world. We have the vision with which we see the world looking through our eyes, and that makes it possible for us to function. It's helpful for us to know what we can see through the telescope, and it's also valuable for us to know what we can see through the microscope. But sooner or later, we have to bring either one of those perspectives into a real-life, everyday vision of our experience as it is. Now I want you to apply that to Scripture. When we look at scripture, we can see the big picture. Uh, I've taught classes, for example, the 20 mountaintops of scripture. You start off in Genesis, you run all the way through to the book of Revelation. Or uh, I've, I've actually been in classes where the Bible was taught from Genesis to Revelation in an hour. Hitting the high points. You have to keep moving, and that's great. But you know what? If you sit in a Bible class for one hour and you see the whole scope and span of Scripture, it's going to be encouraging, it's going to be uplifting, it's going to be motivating, but it's probably not going to be very practical as far as your normal life because you're looking through that telescope. On the other hand, we could look at a word like legizomai and we could zero in with the microscope and we could look at that word in every single passage where it's used in every different form of the verb. And we could just spend hours and hours and hours and you'd walk out going, legizomai, legizomai, legizomai. Right? You've had it just hammered into your head. But somehow we've got to take that big picture and the little picture and pull them together in true to life practical vision. Right? So just for a moment, use that telescope and let's look at the big picture in the book of Philippians. And the big picture is attitude. You've probably heard people say something like attitude is everything. 
Or you may have heard someone say, your attitude determines your altitude. And those are very true statements. Paul in the book of Philippians is all about our mind and our thinking. Let me just give you an example. You might want to jot down four points on the outline of the book of Philippians. Philippians is the epistle of the mind. In chapter 1, we have the single mind. The single mind. And you'll see that in chapter 1 and verse 21. How single-minded he is. You can even see it in verse 12 when he talks about all the things that had happened to him that were difficult. And he says, all the things that have happened to me have worked out for the greater progress of the gospel. He's single-minded in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we have the servant mind. The servant mind in in chapter 2 and verse 5, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. But he's talking about an attitude. It's an attitude of humble service. Then we come into chapter 3 and we have the spiritual mind. And the spiritual mind we find in chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. He's talking about not counting myself to apprehend it. One thing I do, there's the spiritual mind. This also goes with a single mind. Forgetting the things that are behind, looking forward to what's ahead, I press on for the goal of the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's got a spiritual mindset. And then in chapter 4, we have the stable mind. And the stable mind is our verse, chapter 4 and verse 8, because he ends the verse by saying, meditate on these things. And then he says, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, these do in the God of peace will be with you. You're going to have a stable mind. That's the big picture. Now we want to come down into a little bit finer detail, not quite to the microscope level, because the microscope level takes us to the verb itself, legitzomai. Take it into account. Write it in the books. Add up the facts. Come up with a conclusion. That's what it's telling us. I mentioned, I think, in our last class that Faith is an objective exercise. And I think I may have gotten sidetracked on a rabbit trail talking about the conference that we did on victors and victims and how people have been trained to be victims and that's because they've been taught to think subjectively. Objective thinking is the ability to set aside our emotions and our feelings and how it affects us and look at the bare facts. It's really becoming a missing element in our country. Everything is about feeling. Everything is about emotion. Everything is about how it affects me or someone else. And we've lost the ability to have that dispassionate, objective focus. The reason that I say Christianity is an objective exercise is because the power of our faith is not in how strongly I believe. You know, I can believe that God is going to help me win the lottery. And I can buy that ticket and I can pray and say, God said that if we pray, he'll answer. If we seek, ask, knock, it's going to be done for us. And I'm going to pray and I believe God is going to give me that lottery ticket. But it doesn't change the facts. That's subjective thinking. Objective thinking is the ability to set myself aside 
and set aside how I may feel, what I, how it may affect me, and realize that the power of my faith is not how strong I believe, but it's how strong is the object of my faith. Christ is the object of our faith. And therefore, going back to Romans 6, knowing is so important because we have to know the facts. We have to know what he has done. The reason that various theologies come along and various strange teachings come out about salvation is because people are unable to just look at the facts as stated by Scripture. So when I look to the person of Jesus Christ, I know that the power of my faith rests in him, not in me or how much I can work up. But now comes the rub. How much do I know about him? The more I know about him, the greater the power of my faith because the object of my faith is increasing as far as my knowledge and understanding is concerned. And we want to keep that objective focus on Christ. Paul says in Philippians 3.10, you can look right over there, he says that I may feel about him, right? That I may know him and what? The power of his resurrection. That objective truth about who he is and what he has done and the power of his resurrection gives strength. Now, stop and think about this. Here's Paul, the apostle, the great missionary, and he's writing from prison in Rome in the Philippian letter, prison epistle, and he's saying, I am still pressing toward the mark. I haven't arrived. I haven't attained. I am still moving on because there's more for me to learn, more for me to gain, more for me to incorporate into my life. And you'll see that here in just a moment. So, what are the things that Paul wants us to think about that are true, honorable, noble, so on and so forth? All those things described in verse 8. Here they are. Notice going back to verse 1, Therefore, my beloved and long-for brethren, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord. Here he is talking about eternal reward. Verse 1 of Philippians 4 puts in our mind the prospect, the potential of having eternal reward. Is that true? Is that pure? Is that noble? Is that just? Is that lovely? Is that good report? Absolutely. It helps to define what he's talking about. And of course, when we talk about crowns, uh, most of you I'm sure are familiar with the fact there are five crowns. You've got them there on, well, I'm not sure. My pages don't line up with yours because I've been adding more notes this whole week. Uh, It's on page five for me. But... uh, The five crowns are there. The unfading crown, 1 Corinthians 9.25. The crown of joy, Philippians 4.1 mentioned here. And also 2 Thessalonians 2.19. By the way, the unfading crown is given for spiritual self-discipline. Remember Paul says, I beat my body and keep it under subjection, lest after having preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. I am going to discipline myself. The crown of joy is given to those who lead others to a saving knowledge of Christ. They actually are your crown and your joy. 
The crown of righteousness is mentioned in 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. And in that passage, Paul says that the crown of uh, righteousness would be given to him and not to me only, but to all those who love his appearing. So if you look forward with eager anticipation to the coming of Jesus Christ and you live your life in light of it, you're going to receive that crown of righteousness. Or the crown of life, the fourth one in James 1.12 and Revelation 2.10 talks about those who endure suffering. If you have gone through times of trial, deep distress, difficulty, heartache, whatever in your life, and you come through on the other side in faith, there's a crown waiting for you. That's the crown of life. And then the fifth, 1 Peter 5, 4, mentions the crown of glory. In that context, is specifically relating to pastors doing a faithful job and receiving from the chief shepherd the crown of glory for their ministry. But I tend to believe that it relates to all of us in regard to the gift and the ministry that we've been given. If we're faithful and accomplish what he's given us to do, then we have that potential. Right here, you've got the potential of five crowns. The Bible talks about the victor's crown. That's just overcoming. Could be many, many applications to that crown. So the, the potential then in verse 1 of eternal reward. And then if you look in verses 2 and 3, the unity of the body. I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche, two women, both fellow workers of Paul. I implore them to be of the same mind in the Lord. Notice again, emphasis on attitude. I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Can you see the truth, the purity, the beauty of the unity of the body? You know, Nan and I, and I know Roger and many others that have traveled to various parts of the world, are able to see this to a degree, maybe you're not, but when you go to other countries and you see people there, you see them struggling with essentially the same things that we struggle with, and yet they're overcoming in their environment, in their culture, in the situations of their life. They are still pressing on, growing in grace, serving, and it's like we often have this happen. We'll meet someone in Nagaland in the middle of the wilderness and we'll say, Boy, don't they remind you of so-and-so back there in the United States. You, you have almost a spiritual twin somewhere in this world. Somebody whose nature, characteristics, qualities, personality, and it's, it's so interesting sometimes. We went into a remote area in Nagaland, and we went in and sat down, and the guys kept looking at me and looking at me, and I thought, what have I done? Did I spill food on myself? What have I done? And finally, one of them said, we have a man here who looks like your brother. I said, really? I said, he's good looking, isn't he? <laughs> they didn't get the joke. I don't know. But anyway, finally, the guy showed up. A couple years older than me. He looked like he could be my older brother to me. You know? So somewhere in the world, there's someone that's almost your spiritual double. Maybe several, who knows? But we see that, and we see the unity of the body, and we see how beautiful it is, and how wonderful is the truth of our union in Christ, and the purity of people's lives, and the nobility. 
And the whole point that I'm trying to make, and I hope you're getting this, is that when Paul deals with things like this that seem kind of vague and uncertain, look at what he's been talking about. Because he's trying to define things that he's already set forward. In verses 4 to 9, he talks about joy, gentleness, and peace. Notice this, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. I want you to catch this part, it's very important. The peace of God that surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Have you noticed how many times he mentions mind? Is it important how we think? Is it important what we think about? All the way through, go through the book of Philippians and circle. Every time you see mind or your translation may translate it attitude, circle it and go through the book and you'll see how important thinking is to the Apostle Paul. Why is this important? Because he said the peace of God. What was our key verse that we started with with a hurricane up there and in the eye of the hurricane you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you whose mind is like the guy Jesus talks up about uh, in Matthew 7 when he says there was a guy that built a house and there was another guy that built a house and one guy built a house on solid rock and another guy built a house on sinking sand and you know what happens when the storm hit. One of the things that amazes me and I'm sure every pastor feels this same frustration, if you will, that you see people building their house on sinking sand and you know the storm is coming and you try to tell them that the storm is going to hit and they're telling you how beautiful the house is and it's everything they all ever wanted and all of a sudden the storm hits and what happens? It all comes crashing down. The guy who builds a shack on the solid rock, he has a firm foundation. He's got a place where he can stay, and that's where peace, and I want you to just kind of put a little tag on that word peace. Uh, you should have already made a connection, but I would venture to say you probably haven't. I'll make it for you here in just a minute. The meditation on the things that are pure, beautiful, leads us to what I read a moment ago, the things that you learned that you received, that you heard, that you saw in me, all of these things that he's just talked about, these do and the God of peace will be with you. What was it we read back there in verse 7? Is it verse 7? The peace of God that surpasses understanding, jumping up to verse 9. These do, and the God of peace will be with you. Is there a difference between the peace of God and the God of peace? Yeah. They're connected, but he's not talking about the same thing. I want you to get this down. Actually, you don't have to write it down. I do all your work for you. <laughs> it's right there. We have to enter into the peace of God before the God of peace is going to be with us. Can you see the difference between the choice to enter in and the experience of enjoying? 
I have to choose to enter into the peace of God. If I choose to enter into the peace of God, then guess who's there with me? If I'm in the center of the storm, if I am David dwelling in the secret place of the Most High, who's there with me? I chose to enter. I chose to put myself there. But because I chose to put myself there, what is my benefit? My benefit is that's where he is. What is the deepest desire of the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ for you and I right now? I can tell you what it is. And it's the same thing we think about. That where I am, there you may be also. But we can't be there right now. But He can be here. We can't be. We are positionally seated at the right hand of God united with Christ forever and ever, the same way that I described for you what the believer sees when he dies, Paul tells us we are even right now seated with Christ at the right hand of God. Let me ask you a question. Can you see it? No, I can't see it. Can I feel it? No. Can I hear the angels singing? No. But I'm there. That's a spiritual reality. Will I one day see that which is already true of me? Absolutely. Will I one day see that glorious city and the angels pouring out and the Old Testament saints? Yeah, I believe I'm absolutely going to see it. It's a spiritual reality. The mountain the children of Israel stood before was a mountain that could be touched. All of those things are going to be so real and tangible. They're real and tangible right now. I can't go there, but I can live here in the reality of what is there. What does Paul tell us in Colossians chapter 3? Since then, you have been raised up with Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father. Seek the things that are above. Search for the realities that are there, not the things that are here. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. What I, I should have included that in this series. Set your mind on things above. What is he talking about? Meditation. Set your mind on things above, not the things that are on the earth. 90%, 95%. How much of my time is spent focused on the things below? How much time do I actually consciously, in a disciplined way, set my mind on things above? Could that explain the spiritual poverty of our life, the spiritual powerlessness of our life? I think it could. So Paul is urging us, think on these things. Now, when we learn to meditate on the things that Paul, these things, very important phrase, think on these things, what's it going to do for us? Go with me to verse 10, Philippians 4.10. I rejoiced, by the way, just another little side trip, a rabbit just ran by in front of me. I'm going to chase him for a minute. <clears throat> when people say, what is the theme of Philippians? The answer is joy rejoicing. 
right? Well, it's really not. It's the mind. It's the mental attitude. But I'll go even a step further. The real theme of the book of Philippians is suffering. Where's Paul? Roman prison. Who's he writing to? Writing to the Philippians. What happened in Philippi? Acts chapter 16. Paul comes into the city. There's a demon-possessed girl who keeps following them and calling out, these men are servants of the Most High God. Wouldn't most preachers love to have a girl like that following them around? These men are servants of the Most High God. Oh, yes. Uh, keep calling it out, sister. Right? Paul was vexed in his spirit. Why? Because this statement was coming from a demon-possessed girl. And he turned around and he commanded the demon in the name of Christ to come out of her. And as a result of her loss of the ability to tell fortunes, her masters drag Paul and Silas before the authorities and they are beaten and thrown in prison. And we find them there in the deepest part of the prison. And it says that they're in the stocks. Which normally in that context, in that time, meant that both feet, their ankles, and their wrists are locked together. They usually have a, a big bar that would have a couple of places for feet and wrists to go through and they would slam it down and lock it and there you are bent forward. Now they've just been beaten with rods, the Roman punishment. They're pretty sore, they're hurting, they're bruised, they're bloody and now they're stretched out and it's midnight. They've been there a while. And what are they doing? Singing songs. Singing praises to God. I've mentioned this many, many times, but I want to suggest to you the next time you find yourself in a corner somewhere with nowhere to turn, blocked in, overburdened, overwhelmed, I would encourage you, sit down, take out a hymn book, or bring up a song on your phone or computer, whatever, and start singing along, and you'll be amazed how the power of the enemy is broken. I've seen it happen too many times. The enemy flees. Why? Because they know that they just gave you their worst and all you can do is sing praise to God. They're defeated. Their power's broken. And so here's Paul and Silas and they're singing and praising God and the earthquake hits and the chains fall away and the, the bonds are broken the jailkeeper prepares to kill himself. We're going to see that again tomorrow morning. Why would he do that? Paul says, do yourself no harm. We're all here. And he goes to him. Now you have to understand the reason he was going to commit suicide is because if you are put in charge of prisoners under the Roman system and you let the prisoners get away, you're put to death. 
Instead, Paul leads him to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He asks the question, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. He ends up washing their wounds and ministering to them. He and his whole family believe and Paul takes them all outside the prison and baptizes them. Do you see why I say the background of this story? And not only that, after Paul finally leaves Philippi, the Philippians come under persecution. They were the church that stood with him more than any other church. Supported him, prayed for him, gave to his ministry, so on and so forth. The background of this book is suffering, but the wonderful thing about it is we see the joy, but we need to see the joy within the context of what those people were going through. They were going through a lot of suffering. So, come back with me now. Philippians 4.10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I have learned both to be full, to be hungry, to abound, and to suffer need. Verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How many times we quote this verse and it means nothing. It's an empty quote. I can do all things. How many times through my years in the ministry, I can't tell you how many people have quoted that to me and then Christ and burned. I can do all things. What's well, true, the potential is there. The power is there if we'll take advantage of it. But what I want you to see is the meditation of verse 8 leads us to three steps. Just saw three steps in Romans 6, didn't we? Knowing. Reckon, present. Reckoning was that middle ground that takes everything we know and turns it into action. Notice this. Verse 11, I have learned. See the knowing there? I have learned. Paul said, my experience with God, my life on the mission field, my knowledge of the word as it relates to life has taught me this. I have learned. And this is active discipleship, but it leads to something else. Verse 12, I know how. And we talk about people having know-how. Uh, you talk about a cowboy who knows how to throw a figure four around a cow so that it not only goes around its head, but it goes around all four feet and he pulls it up and that cow is laying there helpless. That's not something that you just pick up overnight. That's something that takes time, takes effort, takes practice until finally you get the skill where you can produce on demand. The ability to produce on demand is know-how. Okay? I have learned, that's the process, I know how, that's the skill that is mastered, and then verse 13 I can do is the confidence that this person is going to be able to go through life with because they know what they're capable of with the skills that they've learned. Do you see the progression here? Does this make sense to you? Paul had to grow just like you and I have to grow. 
And if we want to gain in power and effectiveness and impact in our spiritual life, we're going to have to go through the same process. And it's going to take difficulty, it's going to take hardship, and it's going to take the ability to take my experience, subjective, this is what's happening to me, and the Word of God, objective, this is a truth that God has declared, and bring them together so that I can overcome whatever it is I may be going through. Paul was able to do it, and he developed through those three stages. Learning, skill, develop the know-how, and then the can-do confidence, the calm certainty that you are enabled and equipped to face all future possibilities. Wouldn't you love to be able to honestly say with the Apostle Paul, I can do all things. What are we talking about? If we were on the brink of World War III today, we could be. You ready to handle it? That's can-do. Can-do says, I have no fear. I can do it. If we were on the brink of you going to the grocery store and the shelves are empty, which is a possibility, would you be able to stand there and say, I can do all things? See, it's nice to say it when we don't have to prove it. The question is, when the time comes, can we prove it? If we were to go into, and by the way, all the things that I'm telling you are not things I dream up in my mind. This, I don't know if you're picking up on this, but they're talking about this every single day on the news. Fuel running out, uh, cargo lines being shut down, and all of this is a delayed reaction from stuff that's been happening for a year or more. Remember all the cargo ships off California? They couldn't unload the cargo ships because they didn't have the truckers coming in. Why didn't they have the truckers coming in? Because California had such onerous regulations on the truckers that the truckers wouldn't go in. So it's like one created problem after another. These are not things that are just happening. These are things that are being created. And they're building up and building up and building up and there's a breaking point somewhere. If you were to wake up tomorrow and all of a sudden the economy has collapsed, am I the only one that reads about this almost on a daily basis? And you go to your bank and they say, I'm sorry, you have nothing here. And you say, my life savings were there. And they say, sorry, that's what happened in the Depression. You have no money. Well, when that happens, I'm just encouraging all of you. When it happens, say, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me and find out if it's real. Because Paul is not talking about pie-in-the-sky theology. He's talking about hard, harsh reality. We know people who don't know half as much as most of the people in this room that don't know where their food's coming from tomorrow. All over the world. Do not know. We know people all over the world who know that tomorrow they may be arrested and thrown in prison. 
or put to death. They know it. They live that reality every day of their life. We know people who have no money whatsoever, don't know when money will ever come their way, and scratch and struggle and survive. And I can tell you one thing about these people. They can say this and mean it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know how they know? Because they do it every day. That's their daily experience. We need to get up to speed because we are living in a time of really, who knows? I mean, just who knows? Who knows what tomorrow may bring? We don't know. Should we fear? No, we ought to enter into the place of peace. You will keep him in perfect peace whose circumstances go along with their desires. Oh, that's the wrong translation. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. These are rock-solid, absolute promises that are true for every one of us. And you know what? They are true, and they are just, and they are pure, and they are lovely, and they are of good report, and they're noble, and they're full of virtue and everything else. And they're what we really need to be meditating on in these times in which we live. Chapter 4 begins with eternal reward and it ends with reaping what we've sown. Do you believe that we reap what we sow? Do you know what the modern, I don't know what to call it, the battle cry, if you will, modern man, no one should have to reap what they sow. That's your world and my world today. Nobody should have to reap what they sow. Well, I hate to tell you, reality is a hard teacher and reality bites. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, he will reap. You know the problem with reaping? I grew up on a farm. I know many of the folks in here did too. When you plant that seed, you don't reap the next day. You plant that seed and you say, huh, I got away with that. I just planted wild oats and there's no harvest. I'm going to pray for crop failure. No, we'll reap what we sow, but we reap much later, much more, but the same kind. That's how harvest works. Paul's going to show us the harvest that we should look for if you'll follow me now in verse 14. Philippians 4, 14. Nevertheless, you, you Philippians, you people who saw me go through all my suffering and who paid the penalty after I left, they persecuted you like they persecuted me. You guys know. 
You have done well that you shared in my distress. You Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. You guys were the only ones that stood with me, Paul says. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, Paul says. I'm not begging for money. I'm not asking you to give here. He says, I am seeking the fruit that abounds to your account. I want you to reap what you sow. I want you to sow so that you will reap. Verse 18, Indeed, I have all in abound, and I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. You guys have funded my ministry again and again, and you just did it again, and I'm thankful to God for that. But now notice verse 19. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. That's what they're going to reap. They were sowing, and now, from everything that we can gather, as they're going through hardship and difficulty, Paul says, your time of reaping is coming. My God is going to supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You know, I know believers who are in need. I know believers who, it just seems like they pray and pray and pray and they're not getting any answers. Could it be because they failed to sow? Could it be because now they're crying out to God, where is the supply? How are you going to get me through this? Why don't you do something? And they can quote the verse. God is going to supply all my need. No, that's not what Paul said. Paul didn't say that God is going to supply everything that you need or think you need at any given time. Now, He will sustain you. He'll always be faithful to sustain you. But Paul's talking about something more than just keeping you alive. Some believers are content just to be kept alive. No, Paul's saying... Now you're going into your time of hardship and difficulty and affliction and God is going to be faithful to you who thought of me and entered into my conflict and my difficulties and sowed the seeds of your grace and your prayers and your encouragement and so on and so forth. He's going to be faithful. And you're going to reap what you've sown. You know, reaping what we've sown can either be a threat or a promise. If you say to somebody, you're going to reap what you've sown, they might go, yikes. Scares me, right? Or you might say to someone, you're going to reap what you've sown, and they go, really? Wow, what a prospect. We're the ones that choose. We're the ones that have every opportunity every day as we meditate on these things, the purpose and the goal of meditation always ends up in action. What am I going to do in light of what I've learned? 
That's going to be the test for each one of us as we leave this place. What am I going to do with what I learned? Let's pray, take a break. We'll come back, see if there are any questions. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Once again, I thank you. Many people have set aside jobs and family and duties and responsibilities. People have come from afar. People have traveled on the roads, paid these outrageous prices for gasoline that we're paying. People have made an effort, Father, to be here. People have uh, just put things on hold so that they can be here today, things that they needed to be doing so that they could be with us. I pray that you'll bless them, and I pray that the word that is shared is as faulty as it is through my staggering, stumbling communication. I pray that the message will come through loud and clear, that God the Holy Spirit will translate and interpret the message into the circumstances of their life according to the needs that they have. And I pray that all of us, as a result of what we've learned, will reckon these things to be true, will consider them to be a statement of absolute defined fact, and to live our lives in light of it so that we can begin to sow knowing that as we have sown, we will also reap. We thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.